quite abstract about the issues of globalization and global society. And what I want to try and do tonight is give you a bit more of a sort of practitioner's feel of what we mean when we use these terms, how we sort of envisage, if you like, a new foreign policy working. And, you know, I, I think what you're seeing is a process in which we're trying to learn from you know, what has happened over the last 10 years in government, what has worked, what hasn't. Uh, thinking back from the time that Robin Cook came in as Foreign Secretary with the commitment to an ethical foreign policy and all that's happened since and trying to understand how you know, we can learn from this to, to kind of resituate foreign policy around those principles which were so important to us both then and now. But frankly, as much as learning from the experience of the 10 years in terms of what's worked and what hasn't, uh, the perhaps much more important issue is how much the world has changed over these 10 years, how quickly the, the, the foreign policy repertoire, the toolkit of 10 years ago has been overtaken by the consequences of globalization, which has had such a dramatic shift on how, if you like, uh, world power is distributed and I don't want to dwell too long on the very obvious points, the rise of, of India and China, the integration of markets, financial trade but information, all the issues that, that, that we've all read more dissertations and copy on than we could ever wish to. Uh, but I think what we could all conclude is that for someone in the business of foreign policy, it leaves a very different kind of world. It leaves a world where if you want to be effective on Burma, it's not enough anymore to just have a British policy on Burma or even a European policy on Burma. You need to have found a way of engaging with, with, with Burma's Asian neighbors uh, to really have an international community policy on Burma because otherwise uh, whatever steps we take in terms of reducing trade and investment links, there are others at the door waiting to occupy the vacated space. So this need to kind of find common approaches so that you're not engaging in, 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 in if you like, partial sanctions regimes or, 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 or partial policies which have huge leakage in them because you're not carrying the international community with you is one critical bit, if you like, or of, of, of this new world. But a second and equally important bit is the rise of the non-state actors, uh, civil society, but in its broadest definition, the role of multinational uh, business as well, and the critical role uh, such actors play in the formulation of so much international public policy today, uh, whether it is on uh, issues such as uh, the Millennium Development Goals or climate change, uh, but equally on country situations as well. These always important actors have only increased uh, their, 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 the size of their seat at the table over the last uh, 10 years. And as Britain thinks about how to make this new world work in terms of a foreign policy that delivers results for our country, we've both got to kind of factor in these, these, these new forces of change that I, I've touched on, uh, while at the same time making sure that we 
capture our historic advantages, if you like, of which obviously uh, the paramount ones, one in many ways remains the relationship with the United States. But as successive prime ministers have sought to demonstrate, it is that relationship with both the US and Europe uh, which has you know, given Britain um, over recent decades a particularly unique uh, role, if you like, an ability to, to build uh, coalitions of interests around particular issues. But I think very much as we see this, this, this sort of redistribution of, of, of global power, the Commonwealth too, in some ways, is demonstrating a much greater, if you like, sort of Indian summer now than in quite a while, not least because um, of the role of India in it. But, you know, on it is a unique organization because it is not built around interests, it's not built around geography, uh, but it does comprise uh, a quarter of the world. It does, uh, beyond the links of a common uh, English language, combine countries of north, south, east and west uh, in a largely shared value system of, uh, in general, a belief in democracy and human rights and uh, a set of issues which are not held in such high regard uh, in many other uh, global clubs. So out of these historical links, out of the US and Europe links, but also out of the re-emergence at a hugely, hugely I think, inconceivable le level, uh, you know, at least up until the Big Bang. Um, the city of London, uh, whose intangibles seem to be a genteely declining part of the British economy for quite a while, you know, has come roaring back with financial services, global financial services, uh, not just uh, hedge funds and uh, the old uh, city uh, investment side of things, but different back office services to this new uh, global financial market that's forming before our eyes, you know, has rediscovered its role at the center of what David Miliband likes to call a hub. Uh, and so in all sorts of ways, uh, there are means available to the UK to kind of leverage its role in this new global society. Uh, as long as we get beyond that, if you like, traditional instinct of foreign policy, which is to think that it is principally a bilateral activity. You know, my essential example, to the point of the examples I'm going to give you tonight, is, you know, Britain can be very, very forceful and effective in the world as long as it remembers that pretty much everything it does today, it needs to do through smart international coalitions and that it's got a tremendous interest in building the multilateral software for the world's governance, the multilateral platform, perhaps one should better say, on which it, it can operate and can operate in a more competitive, effective way than almost any other country uh, one, one, one can think of. And you know, just one last point before shifting to some examples to try and uh, demonstrate the, uh, the, the, the idea in action. You know, I, I think you know, we are midway in a transition in terms of how our international politics uh, operates. You know, at the one level, there is all of this global integration, which has created a vast literature which overshadows 
all of us in our reading and the work and studies we do about globalization. Uh, the other, right at the bottom, if you like, of the political pyramid, uh, there's almost no politician, even if they're involved in local municipal issues of uh, school standards or, 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 wait, or, or waiting lists for hospitals or um, you know, employment or, or, or crime and, 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 and community quality issues, uh, whether it is here or anywhere else around the world, who isn't daily struck by the global dimension of their problems that their constituents, be they a mayor or a councillor, let alone an MP or a prime minister, want them to solve. There is that sense of growing powerlessness at the roots of the problems they're expected to address uh, if they are to prevail in their next election campaign are no longer within their own hands or means to control. They're not even within Westminster's or Edinburgh's or any other uh, regional or national level of government's influence to control. Uh, they're somewhere offshore in a new hard to understand global environment of decision making uh, which confounds and vexes politicians a lot of the time. And you get the sense that gradually through the mists a little clarity is coming, that we already have in many senses a global economy, uh, one where um, the extraordinary wealth now and uh, financial reserves and sovereign funds of regions like Asia or of the Gulf states in the Middle East at the moment, you know, is giving an independence from the old, if you like, uh, New York-oriented economy of the past, that this is a new economy with many more centers to it, uh, and with therefore an ability to ride out uh, problems in one area of the global economy, perhaps more effectively than in the past, but that this very nature of an, a single market that is starting to emerge from the mists needs in some ways global rules, but perhaps also with it uh, comes the beginnings of a global society, a phrase that Gordon Brown used a lot uh, earlier in the week in his, in his <coughs> Guildhall speech, uh, the sense that uh, there are global responsibilities, that uh, perhaps there are global values too, but that the problems I've mentioned, whether it is migration or terrorism coming out of another state or public health problems that don't respect borders, all of these are forcing us into a sense of mutual responsibility with each other for each other's welfare within the beginnings, the early stages of a global society. And that ultimately as this new structure starts to emerge from the mists and we start to see how we are to govern ourselves in the future, we, I imagine, will see the beginnings of a much robuster, stronger global politics uh, where intergovernmental institutions like the UN or the World Bank will be supplemented by additional new arrangements to deal with issues such as climate change, which are not yet well, well served, or issues like migration will force new uh, international structures to, 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 to handle them. Um, but at the same time uh, that, that that is happening, uh, we will see that this new global politics is less strictly or less purely intergovernmental than in the past, that those stakeholders in civil society that I ma mentioned earlier will play a larger and larger part in driving and shaping the policy agenda.
Um, and you already see it. You see how much of their efforts, uh, an Oxfam or a Save the Children or an Amnesty International, today apply to global levels of decision-making, not just national levels of decision-making. And let me just very quickly give a couple of examples of what I mean by that. We're just this year celebrating the 10th anniversary of the successful treaty banning landmines. And for those of you who remember that effort, there was a slow-moving process between governments centered on the UN, which was going nowhere fast. And one very enlightened government, Canada, uh, teamed up with a series of NGOs which covered the political landscape from uh, uh, veterans movements made up of people who had lost limbs from landmines through to peace movements at the other end and development and humanitarian NGOs and, and faith groups somewhere in the middle. Uh, and all of these groups combining with like-minded governments were able to create a ginger group process that drove agreement on landmines in such a way that it could then be brought back into the formal deliberative uh, treaty writing uh, chambers of the UN, but with a real energy now to get it done, as indeed it was done. And, you know, that, to my mind, was an absolute turning point in the interaction at the global level of civil society and governments. It would never be the same again. Civil society would no longer be importuners uh, waiting to be allowed in uh, for perhaps to be witnesses to some limited hearing in intergovernmental processes. They would be agitators and organizers and lobbyists and advocates who would develop increasingly sophisticated uh, campaigns to shape government behaviors on these kinds of issues. And we saw it in the Make Poverty History campaign in support of the Millennium Development Goals with the striking commitments made at Glen Eagles where again a collaborative government, the British government was essentially saying lobby us, embarrass us so we can embarrass our G8 partners to do more. Uh, there was the whole uh, debt relief movement which similarly saw enlightened leadership from in that case Gordon Brown as Chancellor uh, and a number of others who recognized that debt relief was not the financially impossible mountain to climb that the uh, financial and, and international official community had for a long time claimed, but that there was a need for political will to get governments to join us in getting it done. And again, the vital partners were civil society and extraordinary faith-based efforts in the U.S. particularly where uh, there was a brilliant effort to use the imagery of, 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 of slavery and the sin of debt uh, and of usury um, to get the churches of America of all religions combined uh, around this astonishing effort. And I certainly knew here in the UK it was happening when an uncle of mine who would not normally uh, be following these issues, asked me about the debt campaign and told me he'd heard it from the pulpit uh, of his local village church. Uh, and we see it today 
huge activism around uh, multinational labor standards in terms of uh, the goods we buy in shops, the whole fair trade movement. So it's not just that these campaigns are aimed only at governments. They're aimed at corporations and they're aimed at us as consumers uh, to make sure that we use that consumer power and that shareholder power to change international behaviors in ways uh, that, that, that raise standards. So we're seeing a new politics. And I always observe that, to my mind, when, you know, in my years at the World Bank or the UN, people would come and call on me from different NGO groups. I felt very much that I was meeting the new, the new next generation of political leadership of the country they were coming from. There was much more likely to be the kind of recognizable political organizers' energy and skills in an NGO delegation than there was in the parliamentarians of many countries who would come and visit me because you could tell that people had understood that this was the exciting new frontier of public policy. Uh, it was to be part of this civil society movement which was going to drive to make the world a better place uh, with an ambition that perhaps had been lost uh, in many countries at the national political level. So the challenge is you know, how to build that, multi, that, 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 that multilateral platform uh, to allow these coalitions to kind of deliver results. And, you know, I've given lots of talks in lots of places about strengthening the UN, and I see enough of you here who've, tonight who've heard some of them that you'll be relieved I'm not going to give the same talk tonight. Tonight, rather, I want to take specific examples that are in my portfolio as a minister uh, and show you a little bit in action how this new foreign policy is, if you like, being discovered and shaping up in the actual day-to-day -day practice of, 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 of diplomacy, if you like. And I want to take one example, Zimbabwe, which, if you like, is all about the preventive level of politics. What do you do internationally to prevent a country uh, going over the edge and reaching a point of complete breakdown? I then want to talk about Darfur and what you do when a region of a country at least has gotten to the point of total breakdown and where the issue is an international rescue operation of peacekeepers and reconstruction and how do you, how do you get in there and do it in this complicated new environment that I've described. And then a word about Afghanistan and perhaps a word on the side about Pakistan of the challenge of post post the Darfur situation where you actually get to the next phase, recovery. Uh, just how long and tough and difficult it is. Uh, and again, the partners you need uh, to make it work. And then I want to, if there's time, just talk about one of the sort of more modern, if you like, global issues, um, climate change. Now, starting you know, with Zimbabwe, this is a classic case of a country which most of the world insists on at looking, in, and looking at through an old lens of Britain and Zimbabwe's colonial relationship. The instinct of many people who should know better is to say of the British, there they go again, when we uh, protest the level of economic collapse in the country and of human rights abuse and the lack of political freedoms and the destruction of a wealthy, moderately wealthy, uh, successful economy in that country. 
And the first thing you discover as a British minister, Labour or Tory, uh, this government or the Blair government, or the major government before it, is that if you are the principal spokesman around the world for what's wrong in Zimbabwe, it will remain just a bilateral British-Zimbabwe issue because everybody will immediately slip back into the old habit of seeing it that way. It is a critical issue where you need others to take the lead for you and speak for you. And when you look today at the way Zimbabwe is, there is a fascinating, as I see it, line-up of, of, of um, constituencies or stakeholders. Those who come closest to what let's for a moment call Britain's hardline position of really believing that we have to keep pressure on Zimbabwe to secure free and fair elections and real change in that country. Uh, the people who come closest are African civil society who are incredibly impatient at what they see as you know, a, a absolute exemplar of the kind of African governance that they hoped had been banished from the continent. And it's generational and it's about values and it's about what kind of Africa should be shown to the world and the rage that they exhibit towards this regime is every bit as much as a choleric British politician uh, can demonstrate because we, 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 coming from totally different backgrounds on the issue, arrive at pretty much the same place in terms of just how bad things are uh, in the country now. But strung back from there are, you know, if you like, European civil society are getting a bit warier of is there a double standard here? In what ways is Zimbabwe that much worse than Darfur or that much worse than Equatorial Guinea? Are we really being even-handed in the standards we have? And behind that are European countries who have, between them have very different positions but share that worry about are there some double standards here? So the trick is how do you get this very different constellation of views to gather around an effective strategy which keeps pressure for change and yet carries, if you like, uh, people with you. And, you know, this is a challenge that we are in the middle of. We are expecting any day now that President Mbeki of South Africa will announce the results of his effort to facilitate discussions between the government and the opposition around the conditions for free and fair elections next year. We'll have to see what comes out. Um, but we do already know that if only the SADC conditions, which is the Southern African uh, state's own electoral code, if that alone was fully applied and really meant in Zimbabwe, in other words, not signed up to by President Mugabe, but then ignored, but was really applied, this would already make a dramatic change in, in the quality of uh, the election next year. But, you know, it's a difficult, steady issue where the instinct to just strike out and speak alone and be alone on this issue has to be constantly guarded against because of the need to try and carry as many partners as we can with us, governmental and non-governmental, and indeed to defer to their leadership on many of these issues if we're to get the effective results we want. And to do it, 
without any compromise in the basic human rights approach that is so important to us, of making sure that Zimbabwe uh, is returned to the kind of accountable government and democratic future uh, that its people so evidently want. Let me turn to Darfur, uh, because if Zimbabwe is, in a sense, an example of just how difficult it is to move things nowadays, uh, Darfur is, of course, a place which, again, shows certainly the intractability and slow-moving nature of, of, of solving issues such as that, of this in today's world, but also, if you like, the, the real opportunities that this coalition building provides. And in my mind, you know, Darfur policy has had two phases to it. The first phase was just an outrage on all our parts at the level of killings which were going on several years ago in Darfur. I mean, mass human rights abuses, uh, crimes on an extraordinary scale in which several hundred thousand people at least lost their lives. Several million were displaced. And yet our instinct in that first phase was to say, send in a peacekeeping force, just put them there. If the government objects, go anyway. And, you know, there was in this reaction a very understandable you know, instinct to just force a stop to the violence on uh, the situation there but, and on, on, the, on the government and those who had instigated it. But there was a lack of realism about how you move into a region the size of France, which is landlocked, uh, where the government in Khartoum is willing to actively, even militarily, oppose such an intervention as an invasion. Uh, how do you do it? And very quickly you conclude that you've got to go the diplomatic route. But it cannot be the diplomatic route of empty protests and démarches. It's, it's got to be diplomacy with teeth. And that decision that quickly leads you to understanding that diplomacy with teeth requires not just that Britain and America protest or even Britain, America and the rest of Europe protest. It is that we reach out and bring in, in this case, particularly China. And in fact, just about the first thing I did as a new minister was go to Beijing and tell the slightly bewildered Chinese that I considered the road to Darfur lay through Beijing. Uh, because we had to get them on board in terms of a common approach. And, you know, one of, we, we, we managed to get in July of this year, for the first time really, a good Security Council resolution with a 15 to 0 vote in favor of deploying a UN, AU peacekeeping force there, UNAMID, uh, of renewing a of peace talks and of committing to economic recovery once there was progress on the first two objectives. And 15 to 0 posed to the Sudanese a totally different situation to earlier resolutions which China had abstained from or threatened to veto. Now we had the international community behind us and it was a remarkable effort from, if you like, the the, the, the center of so much of this new diplomacy, which is the British mission, UN mission in New York, uh, which you know, finds pretty much all of these initiatives, it, it is the center of things because so much is now uh, again done through New York on these kinds of problems. But of course, getting that still doesn't get you to the finishing line in Darfur. Uh, 
you think you've got the peace talks going and then critical rebel groups insist they won't go and produce agendas which are hugely exaggerated and uh, in no way appear to respond to the needs of the Darfuris themselves, which is to get back to their communities, have some security, get their land back, uh, get some kind of investment in renewing their water and agricultural assets there. These very basic needs are a million miles away from rebel leaderships located in Paris and Asmara, who seem to think they're writing a Treaty of Versailles for Africa and, you know, arrive with grandiose views about uh, what can be achieved and trying to encourage, encourage uh, realistic rebel representation around a realistic agenda which will allow the people home from these camps is a critical part of what needs to be done. But at the same time, we need to keep pressure up on the government uh, because it's dragging its heels on the UN deployment, resisting uh, non-African components in the force, even though they're only about 5%, amount to only about 5% of the force. So this steady pressure on all fronts in which the range of allies and partners are international human rights organizations, the United States, which remains critical and whose envoy, Andrew Natsios, is a former USAID administrator who spent many years uh, working in Sudan in different hats and, and others, the Chinese, for the reasons I've described, uh, Europe, and it's just not as simple as it used to be. It's not an egram out of my office in the foreign office saying we disapprove. Uh, will country X come to heel? Uh, it is a much more complicated business of trying to herd this disparate set of partners in a common direction which will demonstrate to both rebels and government alike that we're holding together in a single international coalition committed to getting peace, uh, getting the peacekeepers out there to ensure security and willing to invest in recovery if those first objectives are achieved. And all of this is just a lot more complicated than the old bilateral way of doing things, if you like. Let me just move from a Darfur, a work in progress, to Afghanistan, where you know, here is uh, a country which appeared to follow in the sort of tradition, if you like, of Sierra Leone and Kosovo, of, of small, manageable interventions where was, there was the prospect of quite quickly uh, getting a country back on its feet and enabling it to, to embark on its own journey of, of development and self-reliance. It became quickly clear that while indeed we have every expectation that will be Afghanistan's future, that the commitment is a lot longer and a lot harder and a lot more exhausting uh, than was originally understood. And it needs all of Europe to stay with us and of many other allies and, as well. And we see the fraying of the international coalition of support on this as people get more worried about is it an over-militarized approach to Afghanistan, is there enough Afghanistan leadership of this, uh, is President Karzai able to establish his writ uh, across the whole of his country. So the questions mount. The commitments start to peel back and the need to just keep everybody moving in the same direction uh, gets 
harder, not easier. And the U.S., where you know everybody's always focused on Iraq, people don't notice that it remains also the backbone of the operation in Afghanistan, with by far the largest military and financial commitment. But we have the second largest uh, commitment. So we have a huge interest in broadening the burden sharing and keeping civil society as a partner able to help us both with community-level development inside the country with tending to issues like women's rights and women's participation in the education system where huge but fragile progress has been made and where the gains could easily be turned back if a more conservative direction emerges in Afghanistan politics. And at the same time, we need that civil society support to sustain the international coalition for Afghanistan, to remind people that this is about building Afghanistan's own independent future, uh, that there are no hidden agendas here, that this is an enterprise that an NGO as much as a government should and must feel proud and committed uh, to. So a huge challenge there too. And of course, you know, just saying a word about the neighbor Pakistan, which is critical not only for its own sake, but actually to Afghanistan as well because of the shared border uh, which you know, is the center of the uh, renewed insurgency and where people move backwards and forwards across that border at the rate of something like 100,000 a day by some estimates and where a need to have a sub-regional vision and an understanding of these issues which touches on both the democratic development of Pakistan as well as the democratic development of Afghanistan is, is, is absolutely critical. But you could say that Pakistan is a good old-fashioned problem, uh, that here is a government which obviously the U.S. and the U.K. have both had close relationships with, which is now foundering in terms of its democratic, its path to democratic elections, and there have been these terrible setbacks with the state of emergency and the detention of lawyers, uh, judges, uh, human rights and other activists, party people, etc., but here, too, while the U.S. is by far the single most decisive voice and is coming in hard in the need to get the democratic process moving again, uh, an effort we are supporting them in, uh, that's, we are not the sum of the parties here. See, be, being myself as an ex-human rights person, you know, in touch with quite a few uh, Pakistani lawyers throughout this period, I see the network of the human rights watchers and the Amnesty Internationals who are being drawn into action and who are so critical in keeping everybody moving in the right direction on this, preventing the kind of convenient backtracking which might uh, lead us to settle for something less uh, than what Pakistan needs at the moment, which is that, you know, that, that move as soon as is reasonably possible to, 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 to back to democracy. So in all of these situations, the, the, the daily call sheet, the daily cables, reflects the complexity of this new world that we are dealing with. Let me move from that to just say one word about climate change as a new issue which is subjected to this new approach. And just to say that you know, climate change shows this same coalition building issues. You have countries with very different stakes in the climate change uh, business, if you like. You've got the industrial powers who, painful though it is, uh, you know, can see their route to move to a high-growth, low-carbon economy. Um, 
even though there will be painful adjustments along the way. You have the industrializing powers who worry that um, who, who, who worry that uh, a new climate change regime will, in a sense, lock them out. The door will be entry to uh, entry to higher levels of industrialization and growth will be will 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 be locked or barred to them uh, because they are not going to be allowed. They, they're being tried, trapped into emissions limits that would prevent that. And you have the poorer developing countries who, who wonder what the fuss is about but fear that it is, uh, in general, a rich person's problem. And so trying to get all groups to understand the common interest, to get Africa to understand that its already weak agricultural system is fundamentally threatened uh, by weather and water changes, uh, to get uh, the richer in developing countries to understand that te technology adaptation offers ways of achieving these goals which will not uh, take them off the path of growth and the modernization of their economies. And at the same time, uh, making sure that the rich countries don't feel that the system, that they're carrying an unfair portion of uh, the burden in a way which makes them sort of break out of any framework of negotiation. And again, it is civil society who is the critical partner in helping us move everybody. And, you know, perhaps it's not surprising that this new politics isn't always about government-to-government collaboration. We're seeing how the states and cities in the U.S. are moving well ahead of Washington uh, to start galvanizing uh, uh, movement on climate change in the U.S., and again, it is civil society which has spurred so much of that and uh, you know, the dramatic uh, role that Al Gore has played. Um, and I'm not sure today whether he's a civil society leader or a political leader. And uh, I'm not sure. We, I imagine he's made the choice. But um, uh, you know, it's been a powerful intervention in some ways a little similar to the role that Nick Stern has played uh, here in the UK in a very different, quieter, but no less effective mode as well. But you know, Al Gore shared his Nobel Prize with a UN group um, because that UN panel has provided the scientific endorsement for the advocacy of a, of a Gore. So I want to close with coming back to that idea that while we will see dramatic new coalitions coming together to move forward a Darfur or an Afghanistan or climate change or to lobby for changes in a Zimbabwe or in Pakistan, we have to create the platform on which these coalitions can play out these new coalitions for change. And here, a reinforced multilateralism, UN reform to get it back in touch uh, with the nature of the political economy today, with a seat at the top table for India and Brazil uh, and for African countries as well as uh, Japan and, and, and perhaps Germany, one of the other candidate countries, working out who's in, on what terms, and whether it's an interim basis, but some kind of Security Council reform, some kind of G8 reform, both things that the Prime Minister called for uh, on Monday night. All of this you know, is part of creating institutions strong enough to support this new international politics of multiple stakeholders, governments, civil society, businesses, as we play out the politics of finding new solutions to these global and national problems which can't be solved by the old bilateral foreign policy. Thank you.
very much for a great and wide-ranging talk. And, you know, as somebody who runs a centre whose studies are just about the new global politics, it was music to my ears, especially as uh, I run the Global Civil Society Programme, all that emphasis. I'm going to take the liberty of asking the first question, which is your philosophy of reinforced multilateralism, the role of civil society, the need for UN reform, is rather at odds with what the Bush administration says. And isn't that a problem, particularly when you've, I mean, to take an example, but I would have thought it affected everything, to take the example of Afghanistan. The objective in Afghanistan, there is one set of objectives, which is about winning the war on terror, and another set of objectives, which is about solving the problems of Afghanistan. And it's very difficult to mobilize civil society behind an international coalition when that tension exists. Well, Mary, um, that's why I didn't make you an advisor. Let me just say that, I mean, actually, the history of 60 years of UN reform, let me start with the UN and then come to the point of Afghanistan, of, 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 of 60 years of UN reform since the foundation of the organization has been that actually enlightened, forceful American leadership has been critical to pretty much every effective, durable innovation that's occurred. You know, the U.S. was the force behind the drafting of the Charter, the, the, the establishment of the U.N. at San Francisco, and behind that lay you know, a very clear assessment by Truman and Roosevelt that actually America at a point of greater dominance in terms of its share of military and global economic power in 1945 than it is enjoyed, enjoys even today would be better able to manage its interests in the world, which it's recognized would be global interests, through an effective multilateral system which would allow it allies and bargaining power to solve global issues. And, you know, this was very much a value-driven agenda. It was not a narrow self-interest one because Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, led the charge several years later to form the initial Human Rights Council and uh, the conventions that underpin that. So, you know, and, and time after time, American presidents have come to the UN to, you know, seek, uh, provide the kind of leadership and seek the kind of solutions that, you know, enlightened uh, American power um, uh, seeks, looks for. And, you know, to be honest, having served as UNDP administrator under the, during, throughout the first uh, Bush term, uh, you know, even if, um, you know, it was an administration which, which, which did not publicly kind of show, you know, was, was not sort of singing the praises of, of, of the UN as a campaign theme. There was an extremely strong, pragmatic relationship. I and UNDP always got huge support from the United States. I mean, I love to observe that when I was appointed administrator of UNDP, uh, I was the Americans, the Secretary Generals, and the developing countries candidate because I had promised to reform the organization, and I wasn't Europe's candidate, uh, including Britain. So, you know, I actually always had extremely strong support around that. But obviously, you know, there, there were difficulties in the latter years, not 
not for me, but in the U.S.-UN uh, relationship and, you know, the events of the Iraq war and thereafter uh, did, you know, create a kind of a cold spell. Um, and, you know, the consequences are clear. Um, while Kofi Annan and I had very ambitious reform plans for the last couple of years of his term, we didn't achieve very many of them. It was a very disappointing period for UN reform. I'd come over from UNDP hoping we could kind of repeat the sort of fundamental root and branch management reforms that we had carried out in UNDP with American and European support. And that coalition had fragmented because of the divisions around Iraq. So, you know, for me, there's a huge cost in any kind of estrangement between the UN and the US because, you know, it is the vital rail of the organization. It needs to be engaged and it needs to be supportive, even if it's always likely to be more cautious than many other countries because for the US, it's always about giving up something, uh, whereas for other countries, the UN is a vehicle for getting something. I mean, you know, that's the nature of a world with a single superpower in a way. So it's a difficult relationship, but one that had, I felt worked quite constructively for most of the time I was there. But obviously, you know, I think the other point to make on, on, on something like Afghanistan is, you know, I, I really think um, we're sometimes a little bit guilty of caricaturing what we believe to be um, the U.S. position on things. I mean, I think the truth is that the U.S. foreign policy and defense department establishment has very understandably, given the size of the difficulties they faced in Iraq, been very focused on Iraq. I'm just not sure uh, that, and, you know, and when they're not thinking about Iraq, they've got a Middle East peace process, uh, and they've got a few other significant problems to address. And, you know, I think, you know, we've all been guilty, the U.S., ourselves, others, of, in a vital period, a little bit, uh, not focusing enough on Afghanistan. And I think, you know, we're really intensively refocusing. And, you know, from all we've had, I've talked with, with a number of very senior Americans on this. My colleagues have talked to very senior Americans. The Prime Minister's talked to the President. And my own view is that the U.S. is not as far from us as people think. I think it also realizes that we've got to kind of think hard about how we're operating in Afghanistan, see what we can do to do better, to remind ourselves that the basic reasons we're there are to create an open liberal society which is nevertheless consistent with Afghan values and Afghan-led. So I don't think it's impossible uh, to find, you know, to continue to find a, a, a common way of working together there. You can probably work with cities and states and civil society in the United States as well. Um, now, questions. I saw somebody, the person in green at the balcony. I, I think I'll take three at a time. Sure. You're getting two now. Stereo. Uh, my name's Mike Harvey. Um, a very wide-ranging talk, thank you very much. Um, you mentioned civil society and how the manufacture of landmines became banned. But how effective is it if the United States and Israel and its use of cluster bombs, not quite the same in Lebanon last year, and China, I believe, have refused to sign up to that? Also, why is it important 
that we get as many people on side in respect of Zimbabwe, but we ignore that over Iraq. And finally, on Darfur, China sees little value in human rights. Russia isn't that far behind China. United States, really, it applies double standards on human rights. If it's our son of a bitch, we ignore human rights. Indeed, if it's Israel, we ignore human rights, or the United States does. Which brings me to my question, and I know it's fairly close to your heart. I thought you'd already asked them. Which is very close to your heart, I know, which is reform of the United Nations Security Council. It's an anachronism that the five so-called winners of the Second World War dominate permanent membership. I know you've tried to get it expanded. What are the chances of getting it expanded, say, to ten members, and to do away from, with this ridiculous veto where one country, if it doesn't suit them, be it the United States, China, Britain, France or Russia, can stop any meaningful action taking place? Okay, I'm going to take the three up on the balcony and then I'll come down. I've seen one person down. There's a gentleman right up at the back there. Thank you. Um, uh, basically, I'm just from the uh, British Tamils Forum, uh, based in London. Uh, just wanted to ask um, regarding your um, uh, grouped international policy thing, where you say you work with uh, not just with not just the UK government, but the international community as a whole. Regarding the uh, conflict in Sri Lanka, um, basically, just to phrase the question, um, since the since 2002, February 2002, there was a um, a Norway uh, drafted um, uh, ceasefire agreement which was signed by the Sri Lankan government and the uh, Liberation Tigers of Tamil Um This was actually, uh, as, as you know, this is actually breaking down in Sri Lanka and it's kind of, it looks like it's going to be all out war. Um, the, for the last year, the, the international governments like EU, uh, the UK, USA, India have all been saying uh, for both sides to get back to the ceasefire agreement. Um, and since this is a, a Norway, uh, this, in the history of Sri Lanka, the first time that the ceasefire agreement was actually drafted, the fifth ceasefire agreement was drafted by a third party. So it's, it's basically an international agreement. Um, just want to ask if um, the international community cannot guarantee a basic ceasefire, how can they guarantee in Sri Lanka a, a future negotiated settlement? Because, you know, everyone's saying uh, negotiate, but... You know, if you can't guarantee a basic ceasefire, where you know in, in, in the in the last one year, the Sri Lankan government's captured large parts of the east. Um, yeah, how can the international community as, and Britain as a, as a, a past colonial power guarantee a, a future negotiated settlement for the Tamils? Thanks. Um, now there was one more. Yes, the lady there. <coughs> Thank you. I wanted to ask a question in particular about the role of business in all of this um, and a particular question relating to their involvement or businesses' uh, involvement in politically quite vulnerable situations. The role of natural resources in particular and the link to conflict is well documented now. And I wanted to ask your opinion on the role of legislation and international legislation for businesses investing in vulnerable uh, Countries, but also balanced with voluntary codes, which are already in existence, but widely seen as, as often not, not having sufficient teeth. 
Um, and related to that, I wanted to just raise the issue of China, which is increasingly providing a lot of investment in countries such as DR Congo, which recently had sort of $8 billion uh, promised uh, for the mining industry and other infrastructure. Um, and just your thoughts really on, on China's role in these countries, which um, need a lot of encouragement in terms of human rights, uh, you know, respecting human rights, for example. Thank you. Okay, I'll let you come let me take those. about all of those. Yeah, Mike's thing, issue first. Just a word on cluster bombs, because actually I, I, we had a debate on it in the Lords today. You know, in a way, I think the good news on cluster bombs is it's, they're going the way of landmines. Uh, there's been similarly an absolutely slow, painstakingly slow um, process within uh, a UN uh, weapons conference framework in Geneva. Uh, they were meeting just last week. Uh, but now the equivalent of the role that Ottawa and Canada played on landmines is being played by Oslo and Norway on, on, on cluster bombs. And so there was the Oslo process, which has got 82 or 83 member states now involved in it, and it's kind of acting as the same kind of ginger group. I mean, Britain's very involved. Uh, the NGOs are very involved with it. Now, it can't do it alone, just like the Ottawa group couldn't do it alone, because you don't have the main producers and users in that kind of club of the like-minded. But what you can do is write the convention and create the political lobby and the will in that group, and then take it back into the sort of formal, semi-derelict official conference. And embarrass the hell out of people to, go, to, to take them with you. And I think that's where we are, you know, on cluster bombs. And, you know, I, I mean, in the British Lords, this was the second debate this year, and I encouraged them to call many more and put me through my paces as many times as they wanted because, you know, this is the way we, we kind of generate and build the pressure to do under cluster bombs what we did under landmines, and I think that is very important. And I do have to say that, you know, one of the first things we have to do, I mean, whereas a landmine is a landmine is a landmine, and there's very little doubt about the definition of it, you know, cluster bombs is a more complicated issue, and we do have to start by defining exactly what the attributes of a cluster bomb are, because, you know, you mentioned Lebanon, and while it is true that the British have, we have a uh, a, a, a particular weapon type which seems to be like the one that Israel used with such devastating civilian consequences in Lebanon last summer. Ours self-explodes after impact so it doesn't lie around there like a landmine for people to stand on and, and be damaged by later. And secondly, it has a kind of targeting system, which means it only hits the military targets it's, it's intended for, and it, we've, we've had it tested in Norway, and it, it has a much lower failure rate, etc., etc. So, you know, there's got to be, as we move into the debate, there will need to be precision about what we are categorizing as these weapons. But the fundamental idea that light landmines before it with more and more wars being fought in the middle of crowded civilian locations because they're more insurgency than traditional armies clashing with each other, these weapons look as though they are largely consigned for the history books because they're much too indiscriminate for use where there are many civilians around. So I hope we can build up and, and, and get to that result. On Zimbabwe, the reason we need, need allies is, you know, um, 
it is precisely because it will be through a combination of external diplomatic pressure that we will secure change in Zimbabwe. Um, you know, a military intervention is not on the books, uh, and nor should it be. Uh, this has got to come about by empowering uh, change inside Zimbabwe and change from its neighbors uh, to sort of recognize the need to restore that country to, to, to its pre where it was before. On, on Darfur, I recognize that China is not where we are in terms of human rights, but there is a subtle and important and interesting change occurring in China. It recognizes that its shareholding of the global economy today is forcing it to take on global responsibilities that it would undoubtedly prefer it didn't have to take on, uh, because they are not things which it instinctively comes out on in the same place we do. But it's recognizing that if it is to be a kind of, to use a word that's very popular, harmonious uh, player in the world, it does not need itself to get positioned as the defender of the world's bad guys. Uh, that that actually is an antithetical to its commercial and political interests. So I, I don't for a moment want to suggest that you know, China is going to be an easy automatic partner who does exactly what we do on, on human rights issues, not at all. But the point is, it is a critical partner on these issues if we want to succeed. So we've got to kind of work away at it to persuade them to come closer to our positions, to be willing to lower our own expectations of what we're going to get in a Security Council resolution in the nature of this new multilateralist diplomacy, which recognizes that without China, there's not a solution on some of these problems, but that equally reminds China that if indeed China opts out of a solution, there is a cost for China in terms of its own global ambitions. And I would say, therefore, picking up the last point on, on, on um, uh, China's role in the world as an investor in the DRC, etc., you, know, I, I, you know, I have very much a sort of a, a cup half full rather than a cup half empty view of this. You know, as a former head of UNDP, I was extraordinarily frustrated at the difficulty of securing capital for Africa's infrastructure needs. You could get it for health and education, but you couldn't get it for roads and bridges and ports. Uh, there was awareness amongst the European donors that the money, you know, would, would not be effective, that the investments wouldn't work. And uh, China's come in and with a huge ambition, you know, which is on a vast scale because it's really starting to recycle uh, some of its surpluses through this, you know, has, has begun to meet that investment need for Africa. And that's a real need. We tell Africa it needs, that they need growth strategies. We tell them they've got to trade and grow their way out of poverty without roads or ports or electricity. That's very difficult to do. So they're a vital partner, and the challenge is how to make them a good partner, uh, how to work with them to make them understand why we think environmental and social impact issues are vital to investment, why we, I mean, to development, why we think that China must take steps to avoid give it le leading African countries into unsustainable levels of debt again. There are a whole set of issues that need to be worked through, but for me, the way of doing it is engaging with them in a kind of, in a very open-eyed um, partnership which recognizes we're coming from different places but works to make them 
good donors and good investors uh, and, 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 and not, if you like, weak ones. Then just a word on, 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 on Sri Lanka and then I'll come to the other part of, of the question. Just on Sri Lanka, you know, if we get to a point between the government and uh, the, the LTT and the Tamil community where there is a peace agreement which both sides accept and you know, I, I have no doubt that at that stage there will be a possibility if both sides wish part of that agreement to be some kind of international guarantee that that would be available. The problem is that's not the stage we are at at this point. Uh, we're facing a situation of growing violence. I, as recently as uh, this, earlier this week, told the Sri Lankan foreign minister again that we absolutely do not believe there is a military solution to this. Uh, we don't think there is for either side that there must be a negotiated political solution which meets the Tamils' needs for, for, for some kind of devolved, I mean, some major element of, of devolved power, etc., etc., etc. There's got to be a serious negotiation, a serious solution, and then I think there will be international guarantees to it. And I think, you know, again, civil society has been critical. Uh, you know, when you see the way uh, different uh, UN human rights investigators have been treated on recent visits to Sri Lanka, you see the embarrassment power of effective human rights advocacy. Um, just a word on, 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 on business and natural resources. You know, as you know, there has been quite a move, voluntary may be, but nevertheless, when I think back to the late 90s, when every oil contract was you know, a state secret and a corporate secret, and there were huge suspicions about levels of kickbacks, etc., we've moved through the Publish What You Pay campaign, which started with NGOs and then was adopted by Tony Blair and others uh, and turned into the EITI, uh, a formal uh, initiative of governments in which many Western oil companies now make very clear, transparently, what they have paid. The next step to that important thing is one to get other oil companies and state oil companies particularly from Asia and elsewhere who are not yet in that EITI um, framework to be it and it's actually a regular part of my lobbying with Asian countries is to get them to come into that arrangement but the second bit is it stops at the point of payment and the next step is how do we get governments in Africa and elsewhere to declare what they have done uh, with the royalties they've received have they indeed met their commitments uh, uh, to put them into the Niger Delta uh, or elsewhere? Have they shown up in the schools and the health clinics and the other poverty-reducing measures that were produced? So we've got to get transparency across the whole chain, if you like, not just commissions and royalties, but the use thereof as well. So this is a work in progress, but you know, when I benchmark where we are now versus where we were seven or eight years ago, we're making the kind of steady progress which makes it a good example of this new civil society, governmental, multinational, multilateral uh, zeitgeist I've been talking about tonight, if you like. Fantastic. Now, I've got the gentleman with the white sweater in the middle who's had his arm up for a long time. 
Uh, good evening. I'm a graduate student here at the LSE, and I have a question about the global politics you were talking about before. So you've mentioned that you've been talking a lot about business and, and civil society and uh, non-state actors. And I'm wondering, of course, in where, where in all of this legitimacy and accountability come in, because implicitly you're assuming that all of this is a good thing. And I just wonder where the democracy part and legitimacy part is in your, in your story, because I'm not that sure that business or civil society necessarily represent what we all think. Um, and now the person down here. Hi. Um, I'd like to ask you to situate this speech in between two previous um, foreign policy speeches. One was Tony Blair's Chicago speech, and the other was um, Douglas Hurd's speech in the early 90s about um, Britain punching above its weight. And I was wondering if you could, uh, since you've been talking about the strategy of um, a hub of um, smart coalitions, does this mean on the one hand that the Blair um, position, as he advocated, of humanitarian intervention is something which is now not as feasible as it was, and how would you defend your position tonight um, from perhaps the claim that it's a return to something like Douglas Hurd was suggesting, which is this idea of Britain being um, a sort of medium-sized power which is trying to play up its role in the world? Um, okay, we'll have the question down here. Um, my question is, um, how do you see um, General Secretary of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, statement towards Somalia? He said there's no, and we are not sending any troops um, on the UN, and it's not viable. And do you see uh, Somalia needs in international intervention right now? Thanks. Okay, I'm going to let Mark. I, I've, I've noted several people, so I've seen you. So we'll, we'll do this round and then have another one. All right, well, look, let me start with the very important question about, you know, is civil society uh, le legitimate, and for that matter, even more, is business uh, legitimate? And two answers for you. One, uh, these players, I've described them as supplementary to, not substitutes for governments. Uh, this is still at its core an intergovernmental system and will be for all of our lifetimes and beyond, I suspect. Um, perhaps, you know, it forever. Um, so... And, and those governments are increasingly democratically elected in terms of uh, the, gr the global trend line. But, you know, what civil society does is, you know, it's a sort of interest group politics, if you like. Uh, it's, you know, sharpening issues, bringing issues to the front of the agenda uh, in a way that only dedicated advocates for a particular issue can, can do. And, you know, within that context, I think this new global economy, I talked about at the beginning, that there's a perfectly legitimate parallel role for global business to make its case for why uh, transparency and the rule of law and uh, effective legal systems or um, uh, the investment by governments in improving uh, the education qualities of their people or the health care of their people or dealing with HIV AIDS, which is you know, affecting their, their business operations in many parts. All of these are legitimate things for them to have a voice on, not the only voice or the decisive voice, but a voice at the table because you know, this new politics I'm describing is 
exciting and multilateralist, but also frustrating because it's about these different groups bargaining with each other uh, to find a way they can all share um, going forward. And the second half to your half of the answer to your question is the United Nations. When these negotiations take place entirely outside the United Nations, they often do lack any kind of enduring legitimacy. When they come to the United Nations to be endorsed and made a global instrument, that's where they often gather that legitimacy. It's why the landmine treaty had to go back to the UN or why a cluster bomb treaty would ultimately go back to the UN or why you know, human rights work constantly re-engages to try and make the UN human rights machinery more effective because it's one thing for amnesty to be again a human rights practice somewhere. It's hugely more authoritative if you can get a ruling by the UN as well. So, you know, my own view is that, 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 that this sort of mosaic we operate in, you know, has plenty of room for, 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 for the expression of, if you like, sort of democratic power in it. It's not an abdication of policy just to small business or civil society elites. It's just opening up the debate, engaging a lot more people in it, and ending up with a much more driven, energetic global public policy than if you just let it, left it to the sluggish processes of governments. And if I could say one thing, I mean, you know, the, the officials who represent governments in a lot of those negotiations uh, wouldn't be terribly recognizable to their electors either as, uh, as, as their legitimate representatives. So I, I think this is all just, if you like, democratizing international policymaking in a, in a powerful and important way. Um, Turning to, to those two speeches, and I'm delighted to be in such illustrious company for a moment. Um, you know, I, I actually think that Tony Blair's Chicago speech remains a very important speech. For those of you not familiar with it, you know, he laid out the ground rules for humanitarian intervention, a, a series of tests to which you should apply it. You know, was it going to work? Was it? endorsed and legitimized by the world community, etc., etc., etc. And behind it, of course, lay the idea that for a prime minister whose experience was seared in the fires of Kosovo and Sierra Leone and the Balkans more generally uh, before that, um, you know, this was enormously important stuff, that unless you could agree a legitimate way in which the old so-called Article 2.7 of the UN Charter, which seemed to put up a complete barrier to any intervention in the sovereign affairs of another country unless that country posed a threat to international peace and security, was just too, too much of a kind of iron wall for today's world where the human rights crimes in Darfur or the collapse of the Afghanistan state uh, in the Taliban period and it, it's therefore enabling uh, Al-Qaeda to be homed there, that these were developments which other nations could not, you know, look the other way and ignore. There needed to be a doctrine of intervention, a responsibility to protect people from crimes against them from their own governments and uh, those governments against committing uh, crimes abroad against their neighbors, if you like. And, you know, obviously the doctrine took a knock 
Um, but my own view, there was a debate on that too in the Lords this afternoon. And, and my own view, listening to the peers and then my fellow peers and then summing up, was the idea of a kind of rule-based interventionism, which is realistic, prudent, recognizes that interventions are not quick flash-in-the-pan things, but need a long commitment and should only be done when they really are going to net-net do more good than harm and, and save civilians from violence, not subject them to it. If when you meet those tests, I think it is going to remain uh, for us in a Labour government a critical part of the mechanics of how a global society must operate. But the rule-based bit of it, the need for legitimacy and international burden sharing, will be more critical than ever in terms of uh, that, that going forward. So, um, and, and the, you know, turning from that to, to the Douglas Heard speech, with that famous memorable phrase about punching above its weight, you know, I, I don't think, and I, you know, Douglas Heard is was a great foreign secretary. Uh, but I think he would have had some impatience had he been here tonight at the multilateralism uh, I was describing. Uh, I think he remembers an era where it was still all a lot simpler. Um, it wasn't just that you punched above its, your weight, but the thump of a British fist on the table uh, still made a difference uh, in the councils of nations. And, you know, I'm describing a world where Britain isn't less powerful, but other parts of the world and other stakeholders have just gotten a lot more powerful. And so one's forced into these new ways of operating. Uh, so, yes, I share the herd ambition, because I think then as now, uh, Britain has a much more global destiny than most countries because of the nature of our economy and our history and our location uh, and our culture. Um, and therefore, we are engaged in the world more perhaps than almost any other country. Uh, so we have a real interest in making this, uh, this work. But as I say, I think it's a very different vision of what it takes to make it work than before. On, on Somalia... Somalia could have been an example tonight of you know, just the kind of difficult situation where indeed there must be support to Somalia, where there is a currently a, uh, following the Ethiopian intervention, um, the Ethiopians have not left because it's not been possible to deploy an adequate initially AU force uh, to substitute for them and subsequently there was an understanding it would tra transition to a UN force. Uh, the situation has been set back by difficulties in reaching very much stability politically inside the country but also a reluctance of, of troops, international troops to go into what they consider a very dangerous situation. The British have just, uh, we've just uh, financed and provided the airlift to bring in Burundian troops uh, to join the Ugandans who are already there in the effort to internationalize this so that the Ethiopians can pull out as soon as possible, which we consider a very important objective. And I have been personally lobbying the UN uh, to start planning and operationalizing a successor UN mission. But I have to say there's quite a lot of resistance within the UN to it because they feel that the situations for a successful operation are not there and secondly that they are being overburdened and under-supported by the world with missions such as Darfur. 
Now, we've only got five minutes, and I'm going to let the three people, I'm afraid I didn't see your hand, that I saw before speak, but they must only speak one minute each, because that will give uh, Lord Malak Brown three minutes to answer. <laughs> and I'm going to take the lady at the back. Oh, sorry, you're not a lady. <laughs> <laughs> or are you? Yeah. <laughs> right at the back, yeah. Thank you. I didn't realise I look, looked like a lady, but never mind. <laughs> Could you explain to me why Iran shouldn't have a nuclear weapon when it's surrounded by many countries that do have one? Okay. Gentleman over here. Uh, good evening. Nick Crosby, uh, also a power scholar from days gone by. You mentioned that you, you thought the international system would remain intergovernmental. One could argue the most successful peacemaking operation of the last 50 years was the EU, which is above all a, a sovereignty-sharing set of institutions with democratic accountability and a legal order. Do you see any role for EU-type architecture as part of the platform, or maybe even European coal and steel community at a micro level, in solving some of the problems we face? Great. And the gentleman here. Yeah, my question is also about civil society. Andrew Natsois has said in a recent interview that there are some extremist advocacy groups. Uh, any measures taken as sanctions against uh, the Sudanese government, they would say that's not enough. Let us have more. And uh, doesn't that give us an indication that civil society is not all like... Uh, uh, Madam Teresa, and that uh, sometimes civil society organizations, especially the large ones, can be uh, manipulated and uh, can be also too near to certain uh, governments or centers of power. Thank you very much. All right. Well, look, first on Iran and nuclear weapons. I, I mean, I think too many of its neighbors have nuclear weapons, and one more wrong doesn't make a right. Um, you know, I think a nuclear Iran would trigger an enormously damaging regional arms race. Uh, I think the uh, relationship of Iran to its neighbors on both sides is highly unstable one and that uh, nuclear weapons would, 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 would feed that. That said, uh, let me reassure you that I think the solution uh, is a diplomatic one uh, and not a military one to, to prevent that uh, happening. On, on the second issue, Nick, on, on the lessons from the EU, which I think is a very good point, you know, the, the EU has institutionally evolved, as you rightly say, from a rather simple uh, one-cause issue of iron and steel uh, into a multifaceted, very complicated organization. And as it's done so, its governance and its intergovernmental arrangements have, have evolved too. And Earlier, I didn't adequately answer a question on the Security Council, but my argument as to why I think the Security Council will reform, I wish I could be so confident about when, uh, is 
very much analogous to the EU. Uh, for a long time, there were different reforms that Britain and others resisted because they felt it would reduce their power, and I'm talking about vetoes and two commissioners early on, but it wasn't just Britain, lots of countries did. And then finally, the dysfunctionality of the system meant that you needed to give something to get something to make the EU work better. You gave up a bit of power, you sought protection in other alternative arrangements, and the institution moved on and grew and evolved. And I think the same is going to happen on the Security Council. You know, at a certain point, a council which is just too unrepresentative in terms of its permanent members uh, and the procedures, including how the veto is used, those issues will be tackled and there will be an evolutionary process of improving and changing. It may be much slower and it much, may be much more crab-like than many people would want, but we'll slowly get there. Um, then just a, a, a word on, on uh, NGOs as extremists. You know, I have to say, I mean, I think NGOs, you know, I've argued tonight that NGOs are in a sense where people today put a lot of their political energies. Um, and, you know, I have to say, like, in everything to do with politics, governments, political parties, NGOs then too, uh, there are extremists and there are moderates, there are people who are co-opted, there are people whose agendas are open. And, you know, I certainly um, am not going to make a blanket endorsement of uh, the Mother Teresa-like qualities of the NGOs. They would be the first to argue, many of them, that they are politically committed, do have agendas. But to my mind, that increases their value in terms of the debate. And what is very important for an Andrew Natsios as uh, the presidential envoy for Sudan, but I suppose maybe for the Horn, so maybe he does have Somalia too. I, I didn't know that. But, you know, whether it's him or myself or others, is, is to balance these things, to understand where people are coming from, uh, how much to be pressed by their advice, how much of it to take with a pinch of salt. Because, you know, it, it, the NGOs, I, I would just say again, are one voice in the debate, an important one, but not an exclusive one. And, you know, the interests of Somalia should not be decided in an NGO meeting room. They needed to be decided in Somalia by Somalians with the support of the international community and the UN. And within that broader discussion, NGOs as well. So I think sometimes we're all a little bit guilty of, you know, you know this issue of vilifying the NGOs as somehow a self-appointed uh, elite with no democratic base. The ones who don't speak for anybody quickly fall away. They can't raise money. Uh, they lose their reputations. The ones who do speak for people do pretty well, thank you. And, you know, their books grow and their membership grows and their voice is heard. So I think there is a market test for NGOs. Uh, now, I admit there are always those who through a very radical, hot-headed appeal, can get a certain constituency to, to write checks for them, but that's true of every aspect of political life. Well, thank you, and thank you for such comprehensive answers to all the questions, and I feel we've had a really good evening, and, well, thank you very much. Thank you.